0: Well, if we have not met, my name is Chase. I serve as the discipleship pastor. I'm also one of the teaching pastors here at Ignite Church, and I want to wish you a Merry Christmas season. Uh, It's a joy to gather together as we are uh, inching closer to Christmas where we celebrate the arrival and birth of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, into human history. Before we look at our text for this week, I do want to highlight an event that's coming up in the life of our church. After the new year, first week of January, uh, we are going to begin our life courses for the spring semester. Our life courses uh, teach biblical doctrine and principles for Christian living. So perhaps you're a new believer and you want to know what does the Bible say about the Christian life? We have a course for that. Maybe you are newly or nearly married. We have a wonderful course to teach you biblical worldview on the issue of relationships and marriage. Maybe you're a high school or college student and you want to prepare yourself for marriage one day. We have a wonderful course for that. Or new parents as well. Owen and Michelle Trang's you will lead a course for gospel-centered parenting. So I encourage you, you probably saw the table in the lobby as you came in this morning, after service, go and meet some of our wonderful life course leaders and go ahead and get registered for one of those courses. They begin after the new year, and I encourage you to uh, build a biblical worldview and foundation through our life courses. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter nine. And verse 6 this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. If you did not bring a Bible, we have Bibles provided for you in the seat in front of you. Go ahead and grab that and open to page 537. Page 537 in our Pew Bibles. As you turn there, uh, Isaiah is sometimes referred to as the fifth gospel. We have four gospels in the New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but Isaiah is referred to as the fifth gospel because it contains so many descriptions and prophecies of the coming Messiah. And though written some 700 years before the arrival of Jesus, we know that Isaiah looked beyond his own time and wrote concerning the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And this makes Isaiah a fitting study for us for this time of year. Churches around the world, this time of year, observe Advent, which is a word meaning arrival. We take time to focus on the arrival, the birth of Jesus Christ. And this Advent, as a church, we've decided to gather around the four words of the season. If you have a church background, maybe you're familiar with these. They are peace, hope, joy, and love. Last week, we looked at the word hope. And this week, we're going to focus on the second word, peace. Peace. Well, we're all looking for peace, aren't we? Regardless of time, culture, or place, people have longed for peace. And if you search your own heart for a moment, I think you'd pretty quickly be able to identify those areas in your life in which you are restless or in which certain relationships are strained. And at the end of the day, all is said. You simply long for and desire peace. And I don't need to spend much time convincing you on this matter. Look within, look around, you'll see the issue. And in preaching, what I'm doing here is bringing God's word to bear on the realities of life. And so if you come to grips with the fact that you are in need of peace, we're going to bring God's word to bear on that and quickly see that this theme of peace occurs all throughout scripture. In fact, in my study this week, piece of party trivia for you, the word peace appears in every New Testament book with the exception of 1 John. All of that to say, scripture recognizes that inherent to our human experience and condition, there is something not right. Our default setting, if you will, is not peace. We are restless, we are incomplete beings, we strive and do not attain, we work and we cannot properly rest. Again, something is not right in us. We are longing for this peace that just seems to be slightly out of reach. And as we did last week with the word hope, I want to look at some terminology in our scriptures uh, so we understand what we're dealing with when it comes to peace. It'll be on the screen behind me, but there are two main words in scripture, one in the Old, one in the New Testament, translated as peace. The first is the Hebrew word shalom, shalom, and this means a state of wholeness or to be complete. And it's interesting, note, that peace, according to the Hebrew word shalom, is not simply the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of blessing or fullness or completeness. See, I think we've reduced in our culture today the word peace to mean, well, as long as we just don't talk about hot-button issues, then we're at peace. It's kind of a false sense of peace. It's not a true peace or true unity. Scripture goes beyond that, and so I suggest we don't settle for anything less than that. Scripture says, no, it's not just the absence of conflict, but it is the presence of wholeness and blessing. Flip to your New Testaments from the time of Jesus' arrival and into the early church period, we see the Greek word for peace is irene, irene, and this means harmony with God and man, our vertical relationship with God, horizontally with men and women, accomplished through the gospel. Accomplished through the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That is, Scripture does not know anything apart from peace through the gospel. That is, if you're trying to work around the gospel and find peace, if you're trying to avoid the gospel and find peace, you will not find it. It is only accomplished, Scripture teaches, through the gospel of Christ. Shalom and Irene, two biblical words for peace. It's with that in mind, let's now turn to our text this morning. We'll be in a few different ones, but the two I want to read up front are Isaiah chapter nine and then one from Ephesians chapter two. But please follow along as I read Isaiah nine, verses six and seven. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And then a brief sentence from Paul in Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. To us a child is born, he himself is our peace. A brief summary to guide our study this morning is this. Jesus came to bring peace and be peace. Peace. Jesus came to bring peace and be peace. I've organized my notes under three headings this morning, and like I said, we'll be in a few different scriptures, but let's begin with the foundation here, 700 years prior to the time of Christ, Isaiah chapter 9, this precious promise spoken to God's people, the promise of peace. I'll remind you, this is a similar text that we used last week in our study of hope but I'll remind you briefly of the context. It's really important to understand what Isaiah is saying, how his audience would have heard it. We need to understand what's going on behind the scenes, if you will. And Isaiah's writing to a distressed nation, a distressed nation that is, for Israel, this is not a time of peace. In fact, if you would imagine with me for a moment, families gathering around and telling their children of the good old days. We read in 1 Kings chapter 4, about 250 years before Isaiah's prophecy was written, that under King Solomon, one of the great kings of Israel's history, 1 Kings 4, verse 20, says this about Israel's condition. They ate, drank, and were happy. Man, isn't that all we want? Eating, drinking, being happy. So you can imagine parents telling their children The good old days, we long for them. We want the blessing that Solomon brought to our kingdom back to our families. But the situation was certainly not one of peace. Remind you of the context. Israel was ruled by a half-hearted, lukewarm king. His name was Ahaz. And not only that, but Israel, with its national territories and borders, was on the brink of being washed out, being taken over by the then world power, Syria. And so King Ahaz, being a half-hearted God-fearer, says, I need to make a political alliance. Don't care who it's with, I just need to do it. And so we're told that he allied with the king of Assyria. And you can imagine the division that this brought about because you have on the one hand of the political aisle. Uh, those Jewish revolutionaries who said, yeah, whatever it takes, King Ahaz, just align yourself, align our nation with a powerful king that will be able to deliver us from our oppressors. But then you have the good counsel on the other end of the political spectrum telling King Ahaz, what are you doing? You are to serve God, he is our protector, he is our defender, do not get in an alliance with a godless, idolatrous nation. And yet it's division, it's tense. Further compounding this distress and this lack of peace is the fact that Israel was steeped in unrepentant, blatant sin. Let me tell you this, if you want your life to be chaos and reckless and hectic, be living in unrepentant sin. This is what we see in Isaiah chapter one, verse four. Here's how he opens his prophecy. He says, "Aw, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, Children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. They're divided, they're in sin, and because of this, God is a just, holy God. He must bring his judgment to bear on sin. And in fact, he would. Because in about 25 or 30 years beyond Isaiah writing, chapter nine, the great nation of Assyria, the one with whom Ahaz, by the way, formed an alliance, turned on him, and took Israel captive as exiles, tearing families apart, leading them out of their nation and to be slaves in Assyria. This was the instrument God used for their judgment, so you can imagine the setting here. They're asking, families are asking, who will bring peace again? Who will bring peace? and it's against this backdrop, chapter nine, verse six, that we see an unlikely solution to this deep issue. For to us, solution, a child is born. The solution's a child. Not an angel, mind you. Not a grown up king with a visible kingdom. Not a decorated war hero but Israel's hope, Israel's peace, Israel's salvation, verse six, was to be found in a child. And let me point this out to you, this is how God works. God has always used unlikely means to accomplish his purposes. To illustrate this, my mind this week went to the well-known account of David and Goliath, 1 Samuel chapter 17, where Goliath, the Philistine, was just wreaking havoc, intimidating national Israel. And Israel was putting forth their best warriors, and all of them went away ashamed. They could not stand against this behemoth Goliath. And leave it to God to use a lowly, young shepherd boy who has never seen battle but was really good with the slingshot to take out Israel's greatest enemy. His name is David. This is how God works, unlikely means to accomplish his purposes or in the New Testament if you like. Think about Jesus' 12 apostles whom he chose. Matthew chapter 10, you can read about them. As the story of Jesus' life and ministry unfolds, we quickly realize that Jesus could have chosen much better men. Certainly in the world's eyes, they could have been more qualified. These 12 men were simply ordinary, Galilean fishermen, tax collectors. The world looks at them and says, you don't have education, you don't have prestige yet. It's just like God to select the unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. This is how he works. Last illustration, massive theme in the scriptures. Paul, writing to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, says if you need proof that God uses unlikely means, what is weak in the world, to accomplish his purposes, Paul says, look at your own life. He says, church, look at yourself. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29. Here's what Paul says. To the church, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. In other words, you, you guys are not that significant. Look, as, as believers, we are happy to say this, by the way. There, there's nothing special in me that caused God to save me. Yet, Paul says, verse 27 God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? And certainly he did in promising peace for Israel through a child. But as we read on, we discover that this child was no ordinary child. Unlikely, a bit surprising, certainly, but not ordinary. In fact, this was a divine person that the scriptures have in view, a divine person. And the divinity, the godness of this child is evident first in his name. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, this is a promise given to King Ahaz. You're probably familiar with this text. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The child of chapter seven, verse 14 is the child of chapter nine, verse six. God with us. Four more names are given to this child. Second part of verse six, look with me. We're told this child will be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. If you're looking in your Bible, you'll see that these four names are capitalized and that's the translator's way of telling you that this is no ordinary person. The prophecy here, the promise here is of a divine person. Of course, we know This points to and is only ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Think about the ministry of Jesus. Was he not a wonderful counselor? He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the the, uh, secular powers of the day were plotting and working against him. They all fell short. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. How about this, mighty God, when the Jews 700 years before Jesus would have heard Isaiah speak these words, mighty God, they surely would have thought about Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, where they are praising God together and they ascribe God this name, a God mighty and awesome in power. No ordinary child, but a divine person. The everlasting father, just as a good father protects and cares for and provides for his family, so Jesus protects and provides for and cares for the church. And yes, he is the prince of peace. The government is on his shoulders. He's the prince of peace. I said earlier, bears repeating, the scriptures know nothing apart from peace only in the person of Christ and his reign further illustrates the truth that this is a divine person. Verse seven, of the increase of this child's government and of peace, there will be no end. Let me say this, kingdoms rise and fall. History goes on and on. Uh, Kings are appointed and they fall away. Election cycles, year after year. Out with the old, in with the new but this king, this child, his increase of government will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now you can think about 700 years before Jesus arrives onto the scene, Israel in a distressed, hopeless situation, hearing this prophecy and generation after generation, leading up to the time of Jesus, looking in their kings, uh, seeing if the credentials of Isaiah 9 match up with those who are ruling over them. But time after time, it falls short, it falls short until, fast forward 700 years, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, who is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Only Jesus fulfills these divine credentials. Jesus is our peace. He's called the Prince of Peace. He's the promised child, the promised Messiah of old. And so I thought it fitting as we continue our study in this theme of peace, to look at what Christ himself had to say in the New Testament concerning his role in bringing peace to the world. What does the New Testament reveal about this child? Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our second text this morning. Gonna be in the Gospel of Luke, one of the four biographies, if you will, of the life of Christ. And here's where Jesus defines peace for us. And you'll hear this, and as I read it, maybe um, think it's a little contradictory. And so I want to to work through this tension together. These are Jesus' words, Luke chapter 12. Uh, verses 51 through 53. Follow along as I read. Jesus asks, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So Jesus, Prince of Peace, promised Messiah. But when he's asked, he says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring division. In Matthew's account, he says, I came to bring a sword. Well, how do we make sense of this? Two considerations. This isn't contradictory, by the way. We gotta understand this in context. First, hear this. Jesus here in Luke 12 is not expressing desire, but stating fact. He's not expressing desire. It does not please him or bring him joy or pleasure to see division the result of sin in the family, but he says it's the fact of the matter. This is the way things will be. Well, what's the fact? Here's what you need to know. True allegiance to Christ and the gospel always brings division. True allegiance to Christ and the gospel always brings division. And this isn't hard to prove. Look in your own lives for a moment. Think about the relationships you have lost, families, friends, right standing at your job, because you decided to make Christ your Lord and Savior and take his claim seriously. I've shared this illustration in the past, but I found it so helpful and it's a list of questions that are from a church in a closed country. And this pastor asks the series of questions to baptism candidates, where Christianity is legal, you could lose your life for converting. First question he asks is this, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? It says before you step into the water, Be sure you count the cost. Are you willing and ready to leave your home and lose the blessing of your father? To me, this sounds like a church, this sounds like a pastor, this sounds like a group of Christians that understand allegiance to the gospel divides. It it, it cuts to our closest relationships and maybe you're here thinking, frankly, I converted to Christ and not much has changed. Friend, it could be, God's blessing on your life in this season, however, could also be an opportunity for you to look, examine yourself, and ask, am I living a life consistent with the gospel? Because Christ says, eventually, if you're consistent with the gospel, my gospel is gonna bring division to your closest relationships. I want to share this note, brief commentary from the pastor Alistair Begg Commenting on Luke chapter 12, I found it so helpful, uh, clear in explaining this. Here's what he says. Faith in Jesus changes the dynamic of interpersonal relationships, inevitably dividing those who believe from those who don't. Jesus had this difficulty in mind when he said he came to bring division. His ultimate objective was love, forgiveness, and eternal peace with God but he understood that the immediate effect of the cross and the change it would bring to those who had believed would be division. God's ultimate objective, his desire, is not division. It's peace with God and others. But Christ was under no illusions. The immediate effect, the change the gospel would bring about in the lives of its adherents would cause division. The gospel does set us at odds with the thinking of the world, James chapter four, verse four. The author says, my brothers and sisters, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Jesus here is not expressing desire but stating fact. A second consideration, will cover this briefly. I mentioned it earlier. Peace is not the absence of conflict but the presence of blessing. See, if peace was merely the absence of conflict, then Christians would simply maybe look at the gospel and say, well, I'm just going to ignore it because then my relationships will remain intact. If I don't have to give everything to the gospel, to my Lord, Jesus Christ, then maybe I can maintain some of my worldly desires, pleasures, and relationships. But... If we ignore the gospel, then you need to understand that you miss out on the greatest peace and the greatest blessing that is with God through the gospel. Perhaps, Christian, you're here today and you're counting the cost. There's real division in your family. There's real division in your friendships. Not hypothetical, real. You're living in it. And may I just remind you that there is no greater peace and no greater blessing than to be at peace with God through the gospel. There's no better place to be than in the will of God, obeying his word, doing what he says. Jesus says, one chapter before, Luke 11, blessed are those who hear my words and keep them. So that's how Jesus defines peace. He acknowledges reality. Thirdly, our third and final text this morning, I read it in the beginning, will be in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where Jesus was not only the promised child of peace in Isaiah, not only defined peace in a countercultural way during his ministry, that's Luke, but he embodied peace. That is, after Christ came, our peace is not some abstract concept. Our peace is a concrete person. We say, what is peace like? You look to Jesus. He defines, he embodies true peace. And so Paul addresses this theme, Ephesians chapter 2, follow along as I read 13 through sixteen. the hostility I've been thinking about this verse all week and maybe you would underline it verse 14 he himself is our peace what a countercultural phenomenal claim if you're a christian you don't need to search for peace you found it his name is jesus he himself is our peace And Jesus, when he brings peace and embodies peace, especially in a church community, it's gonna affect two relationships. The first is our relationship with one another, our horizontal relationships. This is what Paul says in verses 13 through 15. And he does it by addressing the hot button issue of his day. He says in verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you all who were once far off have been brought near by Christ's blood. Well, who's the you here? In Paul's context, he's referring to Gentiles, non-Jewish believers. This was the hot-button, divisive issue of Jesus' day, of the early church period. Because you have the Jews who believe Christ is the Messiah, and they have thousands of years of history. They have the Hebrew scriptures. They have the temple. And so they would look at these non-Jewish Gentiles, and say, okay, you can be a Christ follower, but you are junior varsity. You are second class. We're the Jews. And it's against this division that Paul wrote so extensively in his letters. This was the issue of the day. Yet, verse 14, Paul says, he himself is our peace. He's made us both one. Jew-Gentile, one. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He has reconciled Jew and Gentile as one in Christ in the church. And for us, though we might not today feel the Jew-Gentile divide as heavily, we do face division, don't we? And right here in this very church, we face the prospect and danger of division. Those who don't talk like us, those who don't dress like us, those who don't think like us, don't vote like us, they don't worship in the same way we do, they don't go to the same scriptures or hold the same theological convictions that maybe we do. And our tendency is to put the dividing wall of hostility back up, but Jesus came to break it down through the cross. To quote James again, James chapter three says this kind of thinking, this divisiveness, this arrogance, this pride, three words to describe it. He says it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It has no place in the church. In the world, of course, there's gonna be factions and divisions and parties. In the church, no place for it let us not build the wall back up, this dividing wall that Christ worked to tear it down. But when we're at odds with one another, that's exactly what we do. Peace with one another. But I close with this. Jesus brings peace and embodies peace ultimately for us with God. Jesus makes it so that we can be at peace with God. God. Friends, I know many of you are here today and you're not at peace with yourselves. You're not at peace in your workplace. You're not at peace in your vocation. You're not at peace in your family. But my friend, the great need, the pressing, urgent problem in your life, if I can suggest this to you, is that you are ultimately not at peace with God. That's the cosmic drama that's the issue facing the modern person today. This is what Paul says in verse 16. It says, No Jew, no Gentile, dividing wall has been torn down. Verse 16, that Jesus might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. That is, Paul says, doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter your social class, your ethnicity your income, he says the ground is level at the foot of the cross. He says the problem here is not among one another. The problem is divine. The problem is we are not at peace with God because our sin has severed us from our creator. All without exception, Paul says, need to be reconciled to God. One pastor said it this way. The Christian says, I have a great need for Christ and I have a great Christ for my need. That's the confession of the church. Christian says, well, what is this idea of boasting in my prestige? I have none before the cross. But by the grace of God go I. Jesus came to bring peace and be Peace, and let me remind you, or maybe tell you for the first time, that the reason for your restlessness, the reason for your despair, the reason for your conflict is ultimately divine. The issue is that you are at odds with your Creator, and the solution is to make peace with God through the cross through the Gospel. Jesus is, remember, the Prince of Peace. I'll close with the famous prayer from the Saint Augustine. He wrote what many believe is the first Christian autobiography around 400 AD. And here's his line. Perhaps you would make this prayer your own. He says to the Lord, because you've made us for yourself, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. May we consider these things as we close in prayer.